The following conversation is 28 Years, A Soldier's Life, recorded with Benjamin Abramowitz, October 8th, 2017. today is I'll give you a little background to lead up to this but I want to talk to you about my uh, 28 years of service some significant memories that come up of incidents that have happened during the 28 years where I served in the army okay There's both an infantryman and an army aviator okay that's what I want to do that's the first uh, that's the first thing on the docket okay now let me talk about my background a little bit because that's important before we before we okay. start first of all this is 8th of october yeah it's your at, birthday isn't it at 1400 yeah happy birthday <laughs> we made it we're still that's here right. <laughs> <laughs> one step at a time yeah so let me start about my 28 years of service and uh, the memories i have i have a lot of memories but i thought there were significant parts of this first of all i'd like to explain a little bit about my background my father uh, was a professional soldier who was an immigrant child who came to this country when he was five years old and joined the army when he was 14 years old with a third grade education. That's the American Army in 1916. He served for 32 years and ended up as lieutenant colonel and commandant of the signal school. That's a story in itself. The other thing, my mother was also an immigrant and came to here the United States when she was two. My father came from Ukraine, my mother came from Poland. But the point is, since today, as I opened my eyes, and it started at 4.30 on October 8th, 1934, retreat, so they told me, I always wanted to be a soldier. That was, that was always my goal. I always wanted to be a soldier. Uh, and when you're two years old, I don't know how you put it into context, but that's what I always wanted to do. And I attained that. I went to Virginia Tech when I was 16 and got my commission when I was 20. Went on to active duty right after that. Could not get my regular commission till I was 21 because you had to be 21. But there was some advantage to that because when I came active duty as a reserve officer, I got $300 uniform uh, 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 help to pay for uniform pay. When you're a regular Army officer, you didn't get that. So immediately I had $300. Although my pay as a second lieutenant was $222 a month. Can I ask you why? Why is it that you always wanted to be a soldier? I'm sure because I saw my father, and uh, and uh, uh, you know he was just uh, he was just my role model. He, he, I mean, I lived on army posts. Uh, but uh, as you grew up to be 15, 16, you're going and you're. But I was in Germany for two of those years. My father was commandant of the signal school in Germany. I associated with soldiers. I saw you know. But did you ever think about what it meant to be a soldier? Oh yeah, I thought I think it had to do a lot with uh, uh, serving our country and also giving something back to the country because it ties in uh, with the Holocaust and Jewish survival too. If because of this country, if it wasn't for this country, we might all have been soap. You know that sort of in, in that all played into this, and uh, that's what I wanted to do and. Uh, and it wasn't a question of being a soldier just to be a boss of somebody. Everyone's it was, got orders. It was, it was more about being part of a team and 
leadership and that kind of thing. Because I, when I went to Virginia Tech, I was not a great cadet. What about the details of it? What were some of the things that you looked forward to about, like personally for you, about being a soldier? Uh, my personal thing was uh, uh, leading men. And at that time, there were no women, but leading men, leading a rifle platoon or, uh, or leading a helicopter platoon, whatever it happened to be, is, is leading men to accomplish whatever the mission might be. Okay. So it, it was just sort of ingrained in me. I mean, it, it was not like, uh, like dictated to me or my father didn't say, you always want to be a soldier. It was not like that. It was uh, set, set the example type thing. Right. Okay. Uh, it's just, it just sort of a head thing. It's very, very difficult to explain it emotionally, but I, oh, that's all. Remember, I was growing up during the Second World War where the, the military is very highly esteemed, and uh, if you weren't a soldier, you had a problem. Yeah. So that was, uh, I remember my grandparents' house, uh, they used to, uh, if you had children serving, they had a little thing uh, with a, a little thing hanging in the house, like a little pendant that showed uh, stars. And my, and my grandparents' house had two stars, one for myself and one for my Uncle Walter that was serving. I mean, all that was all part of it. I'm sure if, if I was born in 1960, it might have been a different story. Right. That's why. But there was a, there was basically a uh, there's a lot of pride that people that's right, that's held right. for. That's right. For it was country. an honorable profession. Yeah. And it still is. Anyway, so that that's a little bit of family background. But what I want to review is some of the incidents that. I remember so vividly, and this is all part of growth and leadership and that kind of thing. What have you got there? What is that? Oh, this? Are those notes? This is my notes. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah, let's go through it. Okay. So, uh, when I was a lieutenant, I finished the advanced course, or the, the basic course at Fort Benning, and was assigned to the 7th Infantry, F Company, 7th Infantry Regiment. Wait, before we start, I want to ask one more question. One okay. Last question. Why do you want to do this, document this right now? As I get, well, let me go back. As when I taught at university, I taught in the area of ethics and leadership. And the more I think about it, and I even think about my father's experience, I did not know till the day he died, and the sister told me that he was born in Ukraine. It's not like he kept it a secret, but you, you know, know. I, you know, there's so many questions. I'd love to have the conversation with him yeah. about a lot of stuff. But there's nothing there. I mean, I can't have that conversation. I feel it's important not only to leave this for my own family, but what I want to do is I'll take this and give it to the, uh, the newly formed Army Museum to put in our archive. Because I think there's something about the word said that's not only, that's part of the legacy you leave. Once you, once you don't leave anything, there is no legacy. There's a legacy, and I'll explain this later, about who, how you affected other people. You know, that's sort of different, but this is sort of a chronology. And uh, it, not that it helps anybody, but it's, it's sort of like uh, when, after my father died and I had all my father's papers, I gave them to the uh, Signal School Library at Fort Gordon. They weren't doing any good in my closet, but people could use that. Right. And that's what I think. Okay. You know, is important. That's why, and we're going to do the ethical will after that. That's why I'll talk about that when we get to that. But 
the point is, you know, you are you are just like a puff of smoke if you don't do it. You disappear. Well, that's I think that's where the ethical the, that, the no, idea that, of ethics come into play this, because we this, leave a momentary legacy according to how we interact yeah, with people. But this is something some guy in in the year three thousand might be looking at this, saying, "Hey, maybe doing some research. What was the army like back then? What, what you know? Well, this is a this is something that they could use. So you want to help us? That's right. Meaning, like our species, maintain yeah, it, it, maintain links to understand our past. That's right. For a better future. That's right. Okay. That's the purpose of the exercise. It's the purpose of everything I do. Because the other <laughs> thing is, the other thing is, for me doing this, and it's just for myself. It doesn't mean nothing. Well, oh, it's a catharsis type thing. But yeah. other than that, I mean, for uh, for a selfish motive like that. But there's there's more to this because it's an effort. It's a little bit of an effort. I had to arrange it with you. We had to set up the stuff. We had to set up a time. I had to make some notes. It's like a, sort of a commitment type thing. Yeah, which is why I wanted to ask the question, the, the the basic question I think that we all reflect upon is why do we do what we do? You know, what is it that we want? And I think you answered that. And that's some sometimes very difficult to articulate because sometimes you just don't want to say. I think uh, these particular anecdotes, whatever we want to call them, incidents, they all show reflect a little bit my character and how I try to deal with things in my life. That doesn't mean I always uh, hit a home run. But it's just their inflection. A reflection of what I do. Let's hit it. Okay. So I was assigned to a platoon, a rifle platoon at Fort Benning. And my company commander is a guy named Sykes, who's an old captain, spoke Mandarin, was in what amounted to the OSS in the Second World War, in the middle of China. He was he was no guy but a, a good officer. But uh, he was a good, like, mentor to me. He cut me some slack. But let me tell you the first incident that came to mind. I was a platoon leader, and I had uh, 30 men in my platoon. A lot of them were Korean veterans. I came in the Army in 1955. So this is late 55, early 56 when this, is, when this transpired. And I had a man in my platoon, a private first class. His name was Private First Class Light Fritz, who had been a first sergeant, and he'd been reduced one at a time. He's now a PFC. He had won the Silver Star in Korea, well decorated. He had uh, about 17 and a half years of service. He had a, he had a problem. What his problem was, he was a drunk. And uh, uh, that was the genesis of his problems. Now, what I did, because I wanted to preserve this guy, and a lot of this had to do, you know, my father was a non-commissioned officer until the Second World War started. I mean, I, uh, I felt an affinity for NCOs, people like that, career soldiers. And uh, what I used to do is give him a three-day pass at the end of every month. He could go out and do what he wanted, but when he showed up, he was all sober, ready to go. I was not going to change his life. Anyway, we got a directive from the battalion commander. The battalion commander commanded the battalion, which had, we had five rifle companies. He was lieutenant colonel. 
and he directed that Leipritz and some others be administratively, administratively boarded out of the army because they had had a court-martial or a couple of company punishments or, you know, this kind of thing, administratively. Now, in the army at that time, they have it now, I guess, they had a board of officers would meet and they would uh, hear the case and decide. The board of officers came from that battalion. So it was the same, uh, same people. And they all worked for the same guy, the same battalion commander. Likerich came up to me and uh, said to me, uh, I want you to defend me, Lieutenant Abramowitz. I said, I'll be glad to do it. So we had the, we had the board. And I made my case. And the, and, and the main thing I figured... I wanted, I wanted this guy to be able to retire in 20 years. I, you know, I didn't want to chop his legs off with two and a half years to go because he was a good soldier for 28 days a month. I beat the case, and he was still in the platoon. Four days later, another director come by to the battalion commander. He says, I want you to try him again. Same information. He comes up to me. Will you handle it? Yes. I beat the case again. The next time, my battalion commander, it's about Thanksgiving, about this time, 1956, my uh, battalion commander called me into his office and he said to me, not the exact words, and he had the executive officer, a guy named Howard in there with him, who was a major. He said, Lieutenant, I, I paraphrase, aren't you concerned about your efficiency report? I said, yes, sir. He says, I want Lightfritz out of the Army. Now, I don't want to have to do this again, but we have another board set on like the 26th of uh, November, and I want him out of here. My father was visiting me that time. It just came down. I was single. I wasn't married. He came down to visit, and I said, I'll never forget. Uh, I was talking to him about the case, and I said, uh, Dad, here's the situation. I told him, and I said, you know, and I, at that time, I was on orders to flight school, so I was supposed to leave in like March or February. And I says, you and I know that they're going to get this guy. How do you think I had to handle this? We got another case coming up next week. I'll never forget. My father looked at me and says, you're the one that's got to shave every morning and look at yourself in the mirror. We beat the case the third time. He tried, the battalion commander tried to stop my promotion to first lieutenant. Now I went down and saw the regimental commander about this. And I told him, uh, my army career was ending before it was going to start because of this incident. And I told my uh, regimental commander, I, uh, Captain Sykes was now the regimental intelligence officer. So, uh, so I went and saw the uh, regimental commander, a guy named Summers, and he said, don't worry about it. Okay. Well, the end result was they got him out of the army. They, he did it again, and he found another guy to defend him, and he was done, like Fritz. But I always felt good about it because it would have been easy for me to buckle. You know, I could have, you know, there's a lot of ways. At the same time, in the same, at that time, we didn't have lawyers doing special court martials. They were, they assigned an officer as trial counsel, which is the prosecutor, another defense counsel. This along the same line, I was assigned to the defense counsel for all the, the battalion court-martials. 
I had four cases and beat every one. They made me the trial, they made me the prosecutor. And when I prosecuted the trial, my theory was I was looking for not a scalp, I was looking for justice. So a lot of the place they put up for trial, I wouldn't try because it was it was a it was a uh, it was a fixed deal. I just didn't like it, and that's that's part of my DNA, like code of, code of ethics. That, when I when I walk by what I call a mistake, it can even be <clears throat> you're staying in a motel and something isn't right. I'll go to the manager and say, look. If I was if I was running this joint, I'd want to know. It's up to you to do something about it. Well, it's character. It's the the Bridge of Spies movie is what I'm thinking of yeah. with Tom Hanks, where he's defending the spy yeah. to give him the right to a human right to a trial that is fair. That's right. When everybody just wants to can him. That's right. Well, listen, I was uh, I was part of a system in Korea where we had a battalion command, uh, a brigade, uh, battle group commander, which was a full colonel. He said, if a guy goes to trial, it's your job to call him guilty. And I'll decide, this. I want the max sentence. You decide whether he's guilty or innocent, but always give him the max sentence. And I'll decide whether to cut it or not. But that's not what the rules read, you know. And sometimes you got to live with it. Let's go to the next one. Okay. Next one. My decision to go to flight school. Okay. I was a platoon leader. It was cold and whatever and, uh, and, and by Fort Benning. And all of a sudden, an L-19, fixed-wing airplane, Landed. I didn't know Army aviation from anything. And at that time, if you were an Army aviator, you were an infantryman who happened to know how to fly. Now aviation is a branch. Right. So this guy lands next to me. He's in a T-shirt, and he's going back to clean sheets at night. And I said, that sounds pretty good to me. And the next day I applied to go to flight school. It looked like a little better life. You know? Yeah. And I went, and... Uh, we went down and went to uh, uh, Camp Gary, which was a civilian contract school. And it was a great flight school. And my flight instructor, a guy named Ray News, I mean, he gave me so much bootleg time to get me through that thing. That was, that was nice. But then we get to Fort Rucker for the advance phase. And I'm uh, flying solo. My instructor is at, uh, at the side of a road strip, you know, just a road at Fort Rucker. And he's there with another another student. And what I'm going to do is go there. We're going to change. I'm going to get out. The other student's going to get in. And I land on this road strip. And as I pass him, I made a wheel, what's called a wheel landing. And I went like this. I gave him the the all the fingers up sign. And I crashed into a tree. Huh. And he was so livid. The guy had never, his name was Cox, the instructor. He walked up. He's, he'd never scratched metal before. So he says to me, He's cursing, he's, and I said, but wasn't that a great wheel landing? Uh-huh. He says, all but the rollout. And the next day I took the prog ride and passed, and then I went on to graduate from uh, from uh, uh, flight school. So from there I went to Fort Riley, Kansas, to the first aviation company, where I flew in the artillery flight, and I was just Peter Pilot, you know. We had 50 aircraft with about... Uh, if 25 were flyable, it was a good day. The rest were all down for maintenance or parts or something. And we had 50 officers in the company, maybe 65 officers in the company. I don't remember. There were no warrant officers involved at that time. And I've been there about six months. And the maintenance of unit was crazy. It was terrible. Now, I'm not a mechanical guy. 
But I recognize that there's people around you who are good mechanical people and uh, you got to use them. So, I, and, and this is another thing in my career. I always took jobs that other people thought were risky, but they're not risky. I'll tell you why. So I went to the company commander. I was a first lieutenant. It was a captain slot. I said, I want to be the air, I want to be the aircraft maintenance officer in the, and the platoon commander of the service platoon. He didn't, you know, he had somebody there who didn't want to be. He said, and I'm thinking to myself, if they got a 50% availability rate, it can't get worse. I can only make it better because it can't get worse. So he he he, uh, he made me, there were a lot of captains in the company, so they made me the service platoon leader and the maintenance, uh, maintenance platoon, uh, uh, service platoon leader and the aviation ma maintenance officer. And I asked to coordinate with the, uh, with the operations officer for what could fly and what couldn't. In instead of three months, the availability went from 50% to 80%. Not because I was smarter than anybody else, is because I had good people. The mechanics that worked for me were good people. The technical inspectors were good people. I let them do their job, you know? The guy in tech supply who runs all the repair parts and everything, guy named Washburn, I let him do his job. If they needed me, I would, I would provide that environment where they could do their job. The one thing I did do was, when they signed off flight the the guy who signed off all the flight discrepancies, you know, they call them red X's, you know, uh, who signed it off, did the work, and signed off. I would take them on the test flight. And they remembered what they didn't do. Yeah. So anyway, that was pretty effective. So first time, the first aviation company passed an inspector general inspection. First time. And the reason was not because, you know, it was me because I don't know how to turn a wrench. But it just, first of all, couldn't get worse. And people used to come, people in the company used to get upset with me. These captains who were in the direct support, but then they used to go to the company commander. And say, you know, Brahma's doing a terrible job. We can't get the, you know, we, we want this this date. We can't do that. And he would say, how about you taking that job? No, he's doing a great job. <laughs> you know, so. And, and, and as I go on, you'll see where I, uh, I took the jobs with risk. But they really weren't risky. <laughs> but everybody thought they were risky. Yeah. Even much later when I sat on a lieutenant colonel's promotion board in Washington. And I always like to do these things. Uh, I volunteered for that because I was part of the system for so many years. I was already a colonel. I was part of the system. I'd like to see really how it works. And when I went there and sat on this promotion board for lieutenant colonel for the army, I found that it's a fair, good system. But when I evaluated an officer's record, I looked at the, the amount of risk he was on the thing. You know the job. I know the the jobs that are risky. So, so to you, it's not risk because you re recognize that once you get into the environment, you're going to figure out the process. That's right. So, everybody else thought it was for risky. You, for you, it's not a risk. It's a call to action. That's right. Okay. That's right. That's right. I feel the same way about almost everything I do. So anyway, so anyway, we get a mission just before I met your grandmother at Fort Riley. I met her there at a Passover Seder and we got, we met on April, we got married in June. So 
But I was gone all of May to Fort Bragg. And I was the maintenance officer who took our 50 aircraft and flew from Fort Riley to Fort Bragg for an exercise. Once again, uh, the Army had leased an airfield in Bennettsville, South Carolina for a dollar. And we were, our, our company was going to fly off there for a week or so. I want to just make an addendum real quick to that last story. It's, it really is a testament to the, the capabilities of a, of a human mind or a brain to assimilate itself in a problem area to create a solution. That with your will and your willingness to, to take the action and to see the problems as they appeared, intuitively you were able to recognize what needed to be fixed. And I think I learned a lot of that from my father, just observing him. Mm-hmm. You know, for the jobs he had and the things he did, and uh, you know, they say they say that if you want to figure out a solution to something, you need to live in the problem. You need to go there. You need to feel it. You got to walk in those moccasins. That's exactly. for sure. Yeah. So anyway, once again, this is 1958, and we I I, I land at Bennettsville, South Carolina, the little airfield. And I had one African-American soldier in my maintenance platoon, a guy named Spec 5 Ransom, who ran my fuel trucks, my ammunition, airport lighting, all that stuff. It was a big up and a lot of responsibility. So I land in Bennettsville, and I meet the airport operator. This guy had bought gas, Snickers candy bars for his shop. You know, he was ready to make a lot of money off this. So... I had made arrangements for my soldiers to sleep in the National Guard Armory. This is before the Civil Rights Act, 1958. So I arrive, and the guy greets me. He says, we're ready. We got all your gas. We got this. We got the snack bar set up. And everybody can use the facilities except that guy. And Ransom was walking across the apron of the thing. I said, we, he said he doesn't have any of them. He used the N-word, people like that using his facilities. I said, that's fine. I said, your place is off limits. We will truck our gasoline from Fort Bragg. I was a first lieutenant at this time. And uh, we'll dig our own latrine. We won't use yours. And he said, you know, I said, too late, my friend. But I was lucky my company commander backed me up because the Army did not like problems like that. You know, we're talking about the South, Jim Crow, all that. And uh, we stayed there for a week, and he's probably still drinking that gasoline 50 years ago. But there's some things you just can't, like my father said, you're the one that's got to shave in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's happened to me different. a little later on when I was with the 82nd Airborne Division, or S3 with an African-American, and we, I, he was flying with my group of helicopters to an area we landed a place, and they wouldn't feed him in the restaurant. This is 1961, 62, 61, I guess. And I went to the guy and said, this guy's a soldier. He was a major. I was, a, I think, a captain at the time. And he said, uh, and then he gets on his high horse. And I go to the guy operating and said, we got to eat. He says, well, he can eat at the back table. He wasn't going to let him in the restaurant before. I said, that's fine. I went to the guy. And he said, uh, the major, and he, I said, we, we'll, you'll eat, I'll eat with you, we'll eat there. And he says, uh, I won't eat at the back table. I said, 30 years ago, they wouldn't let Jews in here. Now we can go in, you'll eat at the back table, next year you'll be able to eat at the front table. So he went in and ate. But the point in, and this guy was senior to me, 
But I've always taken that look at things. You know, I've always uh, tried to do what I think is the right thing. I mean, I, I didn't live a perfect life, per se, but and probably there's a lot of things I missed. But those are incidents that uh, uh, that stand uh, that stand with me. <clears throat> so later on, after I finished with Fort Riley, I get assigned to Korea. And I just got to say, by that time, uh, well, my second son uh, was born when I was in Korea. I didn't see him until he was five months old. At that time, they didn't give you leave for that. But I was in Korea on ground duty. Ground duty mean I was a non-flying job, but I had to fly four hours every month so I can get flight pay. And I was with the uh, uh, seven, 12th Cavalry on the, on the Devolatory Zone. And we were authorized 65 officers in the, in the battle group. We had 28. Now, the first job I had, I was executive officer of, uh, of Company A. And the incident I talk about that is, and this has happened to everybody, we had an inspector general inspection, IG inspection. The guy comes back from division with his whole crew. They look at your trucks. They inspect everything. And before he talked to all my soldiers, my company commander was on R&R. He was in Japan on rest and recuperation. It was a, uh, it was a five-day, six-day deal where you could take a break from your tour. And the, uh, the IG inspection, Inspector General's inspection, was unannounced. So they just walked in on you. So the IG had lunch in my mess hall. At my company mess hall, where, where we fed our troops. In fact, I had no school trained cooks, and my mess sergeant was an eleven Bravo. He wasn't even cook trained, but they all did what they had to do. Maybe these guys did a civilian life or whatever. So we had a good meal, and I had a great baker, and he had uh, apple pie for dessert, a la mode. So the IG has an apple pie with ice cream. I said, "You like it? You can have another thing." He said. Did all the soldiers get ice cream? I said, plenty of ply, plenty of ice cream. He has a second portion. So, after lunch, we're going through the ranks. All the soldiers lined up. He's going through asking questions. They always pick what I call the zombie to ask the question, right? So he goes up to this guy. I don't remember who he was. He said, how'd you like that pie, soldier? He says, I didn't get any. The IG looks at me. I told him there's plenty for everybody. And he goes on and on and on. So after the IG leaves, goes someplace, I go to this guy and say, you didn't, he says, I don't like pie and I don't eat pie. Well, you can't go back to the IG and explain. You asked the wrong guy because he doesn't like pie or eat pie. But those are the breaks of the game. Actually, we passed the inspection fine. But the point is, that's called walking down that alley that's dark and somebody dumps a bucket of crap on you and you don't know where it comes from. I mean, who can, I mean, I was shocked. I said, I didn't get any. I, I, they still had some in the mess hall. But the answer was he didn't eat pie. Instead of saying, I don't eat pie, he said, I didn't get any. So the IG's looking at me, he says, you lied to me and I got a second piece. I took this soldier's piece of pie. <laughs> so that's just one of those incidents that you live with. Mm -hmm. You know, that's... But anyway, after I did that for about four months as executive officer, these are the jobs I had in the battle group. I was still a first lieutenant. I was assistant S-4, 
supply officer. I was the property book officer. I was signed for every stick of equipment in the battle group. I was the motor officer, which was responsible for all the vehicles and how they were running. I was the engineer platoon leader because we had an engineer platoon. And I was also the supply and maintenance platoon leader. I had all those jobs. But it was it was, it was one of the most rewarding tours that you could have. I had a my my platoon sergeant of the engineer platoon, a guy named Sergeant Novak, was a veteran of Anders Polish Brigade that fought through Italy in the Second World War. And he was tough. He didn't need any platoon leaders around him to help him. But anyway, it was a great professional experience. People have a hard time understanding you're separated from your family and all that. But professionally, it was really rewarding. The first day I arrived in Korea, uh, Oz Hart, uh, the company commander, we did a 20-mile road march the first day I arrived with a full pack. He did that once a month. And what he used to do is take his pack that was fixed up but empty, and the soldier who had the best-looking pack, he used to give him his pack with nothing in it, and he would carry the soldier's pack. It was, again, a good lesson learned to see somebody do that. But anyway, I made that 25. And actually, we had two lieutenants assigned after that that didn't, couldn't make the march. But I was going to make it if we had to crawl. I mean, the, the, again, that's part of my uh, upbringing. But that was a great, uh, that was a great uh, uh, experience. And then uh, from Korea, I came back and went to the 82nd Airborne Division where I went to the aviation uh, battalion and I had the uh, general support for them. I had 20 helicopters, 20 crew chiefs, and 20 pilots. And I'll tell you an incident. Back in 1962, when I was with the 82nd, might have been late 61, I'm not sure. The, German, uh, the Russians had just put up the wall in Berlin. And President Kennedy was the president. And some brilliant person said uh, that uh, uh, Kennedy sending a division, he sent a National Guard division to Germany and, you know, that we deployed some troops. And he said he wants to see what a division looks like. The Army's incapable of doing anything in moderation. So the 82nd Airborne Division is picked to do this. And we had five battle groups. That's how we were arranged then. We had the aviation battalion and everything. So next door to the 80, to the 82nd at Fort Bragg is Pope Air Force Base. So they got the whole division to line up at Pope Air Force Base. And they wanted exactly 20 H-13 helicopters, exactly uh, 25 Hueys. And, you know, uh, if there are 500 men in the battalion, they wanted 500 of them there, not 499. Like this guy's going to count them, right? And they had one uh, battle group was dressed in uh, camouflage uniforms. Another was dressed in snowsuits, you know, and all that. So I had maybe four helicopters that weren't flyable. And the, the H-13 was a light helicopter on skids. It didn't have wheels. So I had to put them on low boys to transport them over to Pope. We lined them all up and everything. I'll never forget this. And it was October 8th. 1961. I remember because it was on my birthday and it was on a Sunday. I get a call 
that you're going to have to get down the pulp and move your aircraft over a little bit. So I called a couple of pilots. I called the barracks. I need a couple of people because you had to manhandle these things. Some of them you could fly. But... So I got, the, got over there, and we had to move everything over six feet or whatever. And uh, a week later, I get a call from the division chief of staff. He calls me to his office, full colonel. I was a captain. Calls me up, and he calls me in his office. I report to him. He says, yes, sir. He said, I got this letter from one of your soldiers to the congressman. He said, you got him up on a Sunday to go to Pope Air Force Base and move these helicopters, and he was never told why. So the chief of staff looked at me. He says, why didn't you tell him? I said, because nobody told me. And I said, first of all, why are we worried about a spec four right in Congress? You know, what it was is I found out later that the helicopters were parked too, too close to a gas thing and, and Secret Service says you got to move everybody six paces to the left. And uh, that's why they did it. But once again, somebody jumped the conclusion that because the spec four wrote this thing, now the, uh, surely somebody should have told everybody, we got to do it because whatever the reason is. But sometimes a lot of people don't know the reason. Supreme, the but the, the but the point is instead of standing there, and just accepting and say yes sir three bags full I said nobody told me, and he says I understand you can leave now. <laughs> but that's that's the point you got to deal with stuff like human that. error yeah yeah you got to deal with the the imperfections that's of right but but you got to call them on it you can't just uh, salute and yeah. say uh, it's not an excuse them. but uh, people are fallible the same time. They're always big on sending everybody to jump school. I was an aviator. I didn't have to go to jump school. So I was flying the division commander someplace. I think it was Teddy Conway. And he said to me, Abramowitz, when do you go to jump school? He said, after the women and children, is what I told him. He says, be there Monday. I said, what if I get hurt? He says, I'll make up your flight pay. I got injured. <laughs> he did visit me in the hospital. <laughs> but anyway, when I said when I when my battalion commander and this happened later was standing next to me and I said after the women and children sound like the Titanic you know or something he said yeah, I thought he was going to collapse and I thought but people are human they and I can tell you some other stories like that when I'll get into it uh, then from the eighty second uh, I went to the advanced course at Fort Benning and then we went to Germany. And once again, I was there was a lady going to Germany. At that time, we had three boys, and uh, and Irene, you know, you can't say enough. You know, she was uh, soldiering all through this stuff because she was maintaining this. Because I was at work, and I'll say one thing. You know, it's an interesting thing that in my 28 years of service, Irene only called me at work one time. And that's when my youngest fell off a high chair and she had all three of them and she had to take the hospital or whatever. It was really an emergency. It's not that we had like, now I would call her if I was late or, or something like that. But it, but it was so impacted, that kind of understanding of her and my job and what I was doing. And, and, and she heard her kind of role to play, but she did what she had to do, you know? 
it was not this all this whining and oh you don't spend enough time at home and you know what I mean because it was the nature of what I did but it was her nature to say you know you got your things to do I got my things to do you know cooperate and graduate so anyway we went to Europe and I uh, I arrived and uh, to the uh, the aviation company in the 14th Armored Cavalry on the border between East and West Germany. What I did was, I went there and the company commander, a guy named Lucien Benton, was going to make me assistant operations officer. And I said, I'll be your maintenance officer. And uh, by the way, when I was at when I was at uh, Fort Bragg, they sent me. When it was the second, they sent me to the aviation aviation officers course. I went to Fort uh, Eustis and I graduated number one in the course and I still didn't know how to uh, turn a net but I I could answer all the multiple choice questions in the world. The One of the final exams where they took a T-53 engine, you had to take it apart and put it together again, I walked away. I never put it together again. I couldn't, I, I'd be there today trying to put it together again. But again, and I took over the maintenance company. And that went well. And then we had a big shakeup and we did these big experiments on our mobility stuff. And I had not been to the advanced course, but I became the battalion S3, the operations officer. And I had not even been to the advanced course. But once again, uh, you just salute and you say, you, you do the best you can with your experience you have and you, 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 that's what you do. But that's a little, little note flashback. So we're in, we're in Germany, and I'm. I said I'd be the aircraft maintenance officer, and I did that for. We did well, uh, no problem. I did that for a year, and then I got an assignment to ground duty, and I took over the headquarters troop of the 14th Cavalry, the regimental headquarters troop. And uh, I had about 270 men in the company, in the troop, and these are the people that supported the headquarters and all, and all this stuff. And they'd always failed every IG inspection, maintenance inspection, everything. But I did something interesting. I took my uh, my motor pool people, you know, the people, the maintenance people. Well, I had seven or eight of them. I said, you did not have to pull any extra duty or anything, like guard duty, caping. But the motor pool is open 24 hours a day. It only takes one person to run it, because most of the work is done by the driver. And I told my people in all the staff section, there's no excuses. You want to go down there at 3 o'clock in the morning to do your PM? It's open for business. Because they used to say, I can't go, I can't get away. I said, you can do it whenever you schedule it. It's remarkable how they could always schedule it during duty hours. So. And we always did well with it. But an example of that, then the regiment went on a big maneuver. And the squadrons, like the battalions, they abandoned vehicles, they lost, it was called Winter Arrow, they lost vehicles, it was just a nightmare. And they were trucking vehicles in all the time. So the Corps commander, three-star general, a guy named Polk, went to every troop and asked them what their deadline rate and everything. The last place he came to me was my troop, headquarters troop. And he came to me and he says, What's your deadline rate? I said, I don't have any deadline. He said, but how about another operation? I said, I, did. I said, it's pretty lucky, sir. I didn't even have a flat tire. 
he said, you're now the regimental maintenance officer for the entire regiment. And you'll report to me every month on the status of your vehicles in the regiment. Yeah, this is a three-star general, and the, the regimental commander standing right next to him. So I became the regimental maintenance officer. It's funny, here, I went to the regimental commander. I said, we'll develop a team to get this straightened out. But I said, when I go down there and do my inspections, whatever I do, that's between me and the squadron, the lieutenant colonel down there. I don't want you to be involved in this. Because the bottom line is, when the Corps comes down to inspect, if they don't do the work, you'll know it soon enough. And if they're going to lie about it during the time that they're working with me, it doesn't make any difference. He accepted that. I did every inspection, everything with the three squadrons, and I had a team from an ordnance company to help them and everything. He never, he used to always ask me, he said, what about second spouses, sir? You know our agreement. They all passed inspections. As a result, this was when Vietnam was beginning to heat up. We lost a lot of officers and people, and I was, I guess, on orders. I was a major, I was a brand new major. He made me regimental executive officer, which was the lieutenant colonel's billet, and commanding officer of the provisional squadron, which was the aviation company, the headquarters troop, the engineer company, the ordnance company, and the medical company, by direction of the president. The reason that had to be by direction of the president is because lots of those people outranked me. So that was my last assignment. And Oh, I also, when I was a troop commander at headquarters troop, we had the 84th Army Band was in Fulda, which is a, a band. And it's commanded by a warrant officer usually. But the warrant officer left. So I went to the regimental commander. I said, they, they got to have an officer, somebody. So I said, I'll command the band too. So I commanded the 84th Army Band. And when I went in there, the first sergeant was a guy named Varley, the band. I said to him, they used to play a lot of German-American jobs and stuff like that. But one thing about a band, this was during the draft, if they didn't want to be in the army, if they had to be in the army, everyone in the band wanted to be in the band. And they were also used to be in a place where there was drinking going on. It wasn't like uh, a revelation. And they used to play a lot of German-American jobs, you know, for uh, goodwill and stuff like that. So I met with Varley and I said, first of all, I want to tell you, any kind of music you want to play, you can play. I'm not going to tell you what kind of music you get. He said, really? He said, Mr. Callender, who was the, who was the bandmaster, he left said they couldn't play the Russian sailors dance, they couldn't play the theme from Exodus because you might upset the Germans. I said, they're going to a free concert. They don't have to come if they don't want to listen. So I let them play what they wanted to. The guy who was the was a musician, but he was also like the uh, company clerk of the band, had a $50,000 Ford grant for writing an opera. I mean, those are talented people. And he wrote a regimental mass, uh, march for, for the thing, for the 14th Cavalry, which we played over AFN and everything in the regimental But I did that, and I used to have the band come into the mess hall and play. And they used to love to do it, you know. And uh, I like those kind of challenges.
people said, what do you want to quit? I said, that's a piece of cake. I'd go up there and have a donut in the morning, listen to them rehearse. I also made another rule when I had a troop, I spoke to every soldier every day. And they were all over the place. But what else you got to do? People understand, don't understand. What else do you have to do other than take care of your people? But I don't mean take care of your people. I'm not talking about babying or diapering them. I said, but you got to talk to your people. I mean, what's the paper on your desk? There's nothing to do. Another incident. So where, where are we at right now? 28 years? We're in years. Germany. Oh, no, 28 years. What year is this? Uh, 1962. Uh, you served 28 years in the military. 62. So this is... 63, this is 60, uh, 60, 65. Okay, so, but you started, when did you... I'm number 10, year number 10. We're on year number 10. <laughs> yeah. We're going to 28. Yeah, but... The, we're at, we're almost at an hour. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well. We got, I think, I don't know I, how... I, 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 the main thing I want to talk a little bit about the Vietnam. Uh, that's what I want to address right now. Because okay. I went right from Germany to Vietnam. Yeah. And I became adjutant of the uh, aviation group in the 1st Cavalry Division. But I went to the 1st of the 5th Cavalry as the executive officer. Okay. Number two. And it's and, 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 and a couple of anecdotes I want to tell about this is uh, important. First of all, I got a call one time from the division personnel officer, G1, the man in the And he wanted to know how many people voted in the 1996 election? This is an infantry battalion in the field. 96, you mean 66? 66, yeah. yeah. How many people voted? First of all, it's an improper question. And second of all, you could never find out. I mean, you're on operations. Do you know what I told them? Five more than the next highest battalion. He said, thank you. That's an example of military doing Somebody in Washington wanted to know how many people voted. So they put out this stupid thing that yeah. let's I count everybody. Anyway, that's one. The other thing is when I arrived, the day I arrived at this battalion, it was about November, I guess, 1966. I landed in helicopter. The, the, the battalion commander said to me, I want you to go and go to Charlie Company and relieve the company commander. First of all, I'm thinking, if he's going to relieve a company commander, that's his business, not mine. I had not been in that battalion for 10 minutes to go to relieve this guy. I said, why are you relieving him? He said, he had two men drowned in the South China Sea. South China sea. And uh, I got in a helicopter, went down, and we were on like a stand down at that time. This company had been in the bush for like three, four months. And we were by the South China Sea, and he had his, his people getting cleaned up. So Captain Lowry comes up to me and reports. I said, what happened here? He said, sir, he says, I set up my perimeter. I had lifeguards. I briefed everybody. And these guys going out there and kept on swimming, and they, they didn't follow the instruction. They got wrapped, took it away by the undertow, and they died. We can't find them. Well, I didn't relieve them. I left them there. Got back in helicopter. I hadn't been in this battalion for an hour and a half. And I'm at risk. I go back. The battalion commander comes up to me and says, where's Lowry? I said, sir, I didn't relieve him. At least he gave me a chance to talk. He said, but they, he let those men without swim without my permission. I said, sir, he's been operations facing the enemy, walking point. 
doing ambushes for three months. He didn't ask your permission every time he set up an ambush. He says, what if he did ask your permission? He said, yes. And the men still drown. The brigade commander going to call you and say, I'm going to relieve you because you didn't ask my permission? Where does this end? We're at war. He dropped it. And I've always could have been, kind of been that way, you know, to, to, if I didn't think something was right, I, I would stand truth to power. And there, there was risk associated with that. I mean, he could have said, I was the only uh, executive officer in the whole division that hadn't been uh, to the Commander General Staff College. I mean, I, that was a choice job. There's plenty of guys waiting in line. In the same outfit, in the same outfit, well, later on we had another battalion commander who's a great guy, who had won the Distinguished Service Cross in Korea as a lieutenant. And uh, I got a call from the IG, Inspector General Division, and I, because we were so spread out, I was also a, an assistant IG, although I was executive battalion. Now the Inspector General Division reports direct to the division commander. And there's automatically a conflict. He makes me an IG for him, and I got a battalion commander who I'm answering to, and he's asked me to investigate something in my own battalion, because you get into loyalty issues, you know, about that. I'll tell you one. Calls me up. He calls me back to Aunt Kay, and he says, he says, the 1st and 5th Cavalry, there's been looting going on. It gives me a list of stuff, watches, money, all kinds of stuff that have been looted from the South Vietnamese. He says, I want you to investigate this and get back with me. I got back and got the company commanders together. They were still on operation type though. And I said, look, it's been reported this stuff is missing. Here are the serial numbers the watches, here's the money. I said, I'm gonna be gone for a couple hours. When I get back, I wanna see all this stuff on my desk or my field table. I got back, it was all there. The money was no issue, but the watches with the serial numbers, that's a big deal. So I took the stuff. I took it back to the inspector general, and I said, the report is correct. I said, here's the stuff. I do not know who the culprits were, and I told them what I did. Fortunately, nobody was murdered or raped or that kind of thing, but I think we've delivered the message loud and clear. This is the end of this. Took it. I got a call from the chief of staff of the division about a week later. A guy who later died commanding that division, a guy named John, uh, Colonel Casey, who had been my brigade commander. He called me up and he said, you can work for me anytime. He said, we sent that same kind of letter to every maneuver battalion. Every other maneuver battalion said, it's incorrect, we don't loot. Then I, after I reported it to the IG, before the Colonel Casey call, I went to my battalion commander. And I said, sir, you know I'm the IG for this. And I did this investigation on this, and this was the result, this is what I did. He just looked at me and said, you did what you gotta do, don't worry about it. If it had been somebody else, another career ender. Because what you're talking about, leadership, it's the officer's job to make sure nobody loots and behaves himself. What are you talking about, me lie or anything else? But again, I, as an individual, I couldn't, you know, I, I, that's the way I handled it. 
it could have come a different result. First of all, obviously the company commanders trusted me because they could have buried it too. I mean, they could have come to me and said, it never happened. We, you know, who do we, whose word is it that says the battalion, the battalion looted? So that's, uh, that happened. After I came back from, from, uh, uh, Vietnam. I went to the Commander General Staff College for a student, but then I went to Washington in the Pentagon, where I was part of the International Standardization Office. It was a very small office. We worked for a three. I worked for a Colonel who worked for a three-star, and all the directors of all the offices except mine were major generals. And uh, I was an action officer. Did my regular job. I've been there about a year, and I and my my boss, who had more time and grade as a colonel than I had in the army, I went to him. I said he has orders to go someplace, and I said, "Sir," he said, uh, "I'd just like to say I'd like your job," <laughs> and he said to me, "Oh, you just don't have enough experience. You haven't been in the building alone long enough, and etc." And this was the kind of guy who lived in like the Bermuda Triangle. If you wrote a paper, and you handed it to him. He changed happy to glad, and you know, he, he just he just make it miserable. So you 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 would have a original idea because you know it it end up in the crapper. So about three days after that, I get a call from the assistant chief of staff for forest development, Axe Four, three star guy named Ace Collins, taught me a lot about leadership, and I'll show you how. He calls me into his office. And he says, Abramowitz, how would you like to be Chief of International Standardization? I was a brand new Lieutenant Colonel. And really, I was the same, with that job, I was the same level as Major General. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I want to tell you something. He says, I'm going to give you that job. And he said, interestingly enough, he said, this is what he said that talks a lot about leadership. He said to me, if ever you need to talk to me, you just call up here and you can get in to see me. Because he knew if I was going to call him, it wasn't about the weather. It was something important to me. It might be nothing to him, but he was willing to, you know what I mean? He's telling me. Do you know what I said to him? I said, you have more people blocking for you than the Green Bay Packers. So you better tell them what you just told me. He called two major generals and three colonels and said, when Abramowitz wants to see me, he can see me. Okay, because he knew that, you know. But that's a good lesson in leadership. You know, because... Anyway, then he says to me, I want you to go down and tell When Ace General Collins said to me, I want you to tell my boss, I said, sir, I talked to him about this job three weeks ago. He said I wasn't qualified. He'll think I'm starting a conspiracy if I go down and tell him I got this job. I think you ought to call him. <laughs> and he did. Do you want to continue this after? Let me see it. Where are we at? What year are we at? We're at... Uh, my second tour in Vietnam, 1971. <laughs> now we'll start with the Tet Offensive. We'll start with 1971. Tet Offensive, 1971. Okay. I, I want to talk about my second tour to Vietnam, but when I was in the Pentagon, I read something in the, Star in the uh, Stars and Stripes or <clears throat> military publication that said if you wanted to go to get a master's degree, uh, the Army would let you go for a year, but you had to pay your own way. Well, I had the GI Bill, and my assignments officer was Norm Schwarzkopf, who 
everybody knows, became a Desert Storm. He was the commander. He was lieutenant colonel at that time. He was my assignments officer in career management. And I had gone to the advanced course with him. And I called him, Norman, I read this article. Can I go? He said, get your boss's permission. He, I'll send you. And I was already enrolled in George Washington University in a master's program, but this was an MBA program. So I set it all up, and uh, General Collins said I could go, no problem. I called him up, and uh, he said, uh, Norm says, I said, do I need any paperwork? He says, no, your word is good enough, but you just uh, volunteered for a second tour in Vietnam. So I said, okay, just don't tell my wife. Anyway, so I went to GW for a year. Actually, it took me nine months. <clears throat> I got my MBA and went from there. But I arrived in Vietnam, and I was assigned as senior advisor uh, to a Vietnamese 8th Regiment at a place called the Lai Kê. And anyway, uh, we were doing our normal thing. Remember, Vietnamization had taken place, and we didn't have a lot of American troops in the area to call on. You couldn't even call on for your own medevac. I mean, you were just out there, and I had a small team with about eight or ten of us. <clears throat> and actually, I shrunk the team because uh, I sent them to other places, really out of harm's way, uh, because they only needed a couple of Americans to hold the flag. We didn't need all those people, and I had uh, and I had to have somebody to talk to that could speak English. So that's what I did. So anyway. Uh, just before the Easter offensive, 1972, I was uh, we're on an operation and we get begin to get mortared, and uh, it was at the start of Easter offensive, and General Hollingsworth, the Corps commander, was flying above my position. He called down to me. He says, "What's going on down there?" And he said, uh, "I said, we're being mortared pretty a lot," and he said, "I don't see anything from here." Of course, he was at 10,000 feet. And I said, uh, let me put it this way. My mother wouldn't want a nice Jewish boy to be where I am right now. And he shut off his radio and kept going. Anyway, but later on that week, I was with my counterpart in a helicopter, command control aircraft, and we saw a battalion, about 500, North Vietnamese soldiers in the open. I'd never seen that, the enemy in the open. And we had some Vietnamese Air Force gunships attached to us as part of our unit. And they were loggered someplace. And I'll never forget it. And we called down to them to come because this was a great target. And their response was, we can't come because we're eating lunch. I looked at my counterpart and I said, the war has been lost. I'll never forget that. Later on, we called them again, and they said, well, we'll come if you give us two generators and 200 pounds of rice. They were bartering to come. And after, after that, uh, you know, I, I soon, uh, you know, I, after the, ten of, uh, the offensive ended and we were relieved, uh, you know, I flew home. But I'll tell you something, that always stuck with me. And they were, uh, my counterpart was a good soldier. He ran a good regiment, but I mean, that, that just shows the depth of that kind of corruption. You can't, you can't do anything. About it. The only person that suffers is a soldier. Well, I went from there uh, to Lehigh University for one year where I was a professor of military science. Interesting story there, we had a dining in. You know, if you talk about Pennsylvania and that area, Lehigh Villa, Valley, Bethlehem Steel, 
It's a real ethnic area. A lot of uh, Polish people, Serbian, you know, I mean, and the coal miners, those kind of people. And we had a dining inn, and I invited General Becton, and we had it at like the Croatian Serbian club, you know, in town. This is for my senior ROTC cadets and everything. And General Becton looked like he stepped out of a recruiting office. He was a brigadier general at the time, African-American. When he walked in that place, I thought the place was going to collapse. They didn't say anything, but it was the first time an African-American had ever been in that joint. It was a bear joint. And it was really interesting to see that any spoke gave good talk. And it was not a problem. But uh, uh, they didn't even, you know, they worked out. They got their money. After that, I went to uh, uh, back to Fort Leavenworth on the faculty for five years. And the story I tell about that is a couple of stories. First of all, uh, uh, Jack Jacobs was, was in my class. You might see him on MSNBC, Medal of Honor winner. And I was teaching a class one day, he was a student, and somebody stood up and said, or asked a question, he said, you're the first Jew I ever saw with a combat infantry badge. All the Jews I know are lawyers in the quartermaster or, or doctors. And I said, who's that guy sitting next to you? He said, that's my friend Jack Jacobs. I said, he's one of our people. <laughs> and I want to tell you, you could have heard a pin drop. If you talk, and it was like a target of opportunity. I mean, I didn't plan that, either the Jack. But that one situation, there were 50 people in that room, it changed the entire perception among people of what they thought about Jews if they were in that room that day. And that's kind of interesting. I was also, when I was at Fort Leavenworth, I was the Jewish lay leader. We didn't have a Jewish chaplain. And I used to conduct services every Friday night and that kind of thing. And uh, the head of non-resident instruction used to run these non-resident courses. And we had uh, the reserve officers used to come in and finish up their Commander General Staff College course. The rest was by correspondence. And uh, uh, one, he had an Orthodox rabbi in the course one time. And he asked the director of non-resident instruction, the graduation was on Friday, and he went to see, the, the rabbi went to see the director, was a full colonel. He said, uh, I can't, if I stay until Friday, I gotta take it till Sunday because I can't fly on Saturday because it's against my religion, you know. He doesn't fly or drive. I can't leave here until Sunday. And Bartolt, the, 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 the head of numbers, said, uh, I'm sorry, it's a rule. Or actually, rules are often guidelines depending on who it affects. And uh, the, the rabbi came up to see me as the Jewish lay leader. I was lieutenant colonel. I might have been a colonel. I went to see Bartolt and I sat down with him. And I explained it to him. He says, well, you mean the Jews can't fight on Saturday? I said, that's why they had a six-day war. And he said, let them go. <laughs> but anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. And in 1975, when the roof really fell in Vietnam, I was, uh, you know, when the, when the North Vietnamese had won, I was teaching a class. And this is unusual in the military school because everything is class is by the book and everything. I went to class, we got the word during the class, I released the class. I said, this is, this is, uh, this is just not the time to, uh, I don't feel like teaching and you don't feel like learning. I let everybody go home. Nobody said anything. 
And of course, from there, I went to Fort Riley, where I ran the ROTC program, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to get uh, Dave sitting down and all commissioned in the Army there, and uh, that was a great feeling. But the interesting thing I got to tell you about religion in the military, I had a, a fellow area commander who was less than me, a full colonel, who was really religious, religious Christian, and. Uh, he had a guy that was working for him down in Texas because he had this big area. And he had written an efficiency report on the guy and the guy didn't like, didn't feel it was justified what he wrote about him. And, and, and the major came all the way from Texas up to our place. Up in the next office, I'm overhearing this. And uh, he said, the guy made his case. And uh, the colonel I'm talking about said, well, let's get our our hands and our knees and pray for an answer from God. And I'm sitting there listening to this, I'm figuring, the guy's got it made, he's gonna change it. If they go to God, God's not gonna give a bad answer on this. So they go to lunch and come back, and by God, he said, no pun intended, the colonel said, I'm sorry we prayed, but I can't change it. God didn't tell me. And I said, that's a mentality, anyway. Those are the things that uh, that bother me. Now, the other areas I did when I was there, I had responsibility for a lot of black colleges, uh, historically black colleges. You gotta understand, even at that time, many of the blacks in those colleges never had worked with Caucasian people. They came from black communities, they came there. Two things I wanna say. When I was at Alcorn State, the president of Alcorn State, I was talking to him, and I says, I get all these kids in here, and they just leave. You know, they don't get settled in, and how can I, what can I do about it? I said, I've got your answer. He said, what's that? I said, first of all, how many faculty you got? He told me. I said, divide the number of faculty, the number of students you got into the number of faculty, including you, and you make each one of them responsible for his share of the kids. And part of their evaluation is how many people stay. Not on, it didn't depend on what curriculum they're in or anything. And you give them each one a hundred bucks to buy them hamburgers and entertain them and all. He said, that's a great idea. He says, I want you to talk to my faculty tomorrow morning at eight o'clock and tell it to them. Historically, black college is not like any other college, in my experience. When he says everybody to show up at 8 o'clock in the morning, that faculty's there. At a regular college, that they go if they feel like it. Okay. So I went, I'm looking at this crowd, and here they're saying, here is this army Yankee Jew going to tell us how to operate. Well, I gave him the pitch. I don't know if it ever worked out, but uh, I, that's another thing I, I enjoyed telling. But the last thing I did was, to prepare the African-American kids for summer camp, first of all, none of them could swim because of the dynamics of the South. You know, for so long, they weren't allowed in the swimming pool. And the second thing, they never worked with other people other than blacks. So what I did is three times a year, during the year, I got them weekends and mixed them with the white, predominantly white schools, and mixed up leadership on a weekend. So they would all inter, you know, uh, 
in a right each other. And uh, it was very effective. So I, uh, they got them there. They didn't feel like, when I got to Fort Riley, I was chief of staff of the camp. They didn't feel like strangers in a strange land. I know they had worked with at least, at least a little bit, worked with whites and that kind of thing. And it was very effective. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they should be. But uh, those are the those are the little anecdotal things that uh, I think that, I, that business with ROTC was a major uh, to me a major thing. And uh, my uh, my uh, region commander supported me on that. I was the only one that did that. I, I just felt we had to come up with something to to make people feel like everybody's part of the team. On the other hand, when you go to Mississippi, a lot of those people never worked with blacks before other than you know, as a janitor or something like that. So it worked uh, two ways. It's a, so that's that's about in summary. And then I retired and came to Florida. So that's, that's about it. Is there anything you wanted to accomplish or done that you didn't get to do? Not, uh, not really. Whatever job I had all those years, I felt that I made a positive impact. I really do. Was there an, ever a job you wanted that you didn't get? Hmm. You know, one time I think I wanted to be a uh, exchange student with the British Army. Oh. And when I was in Germany, uh, I would have liked to do that. Yeah, I would have too. But I, but. Uh, whatever happened it didn't work out but I did become a provisional squadron commander by direction of the president which is not a bad exchange as a matter of fact one time I, at the engineer you worked with the Vietnamese what you worked with the Vietnamese no that was in Germany when I was there. I know but I'm saying you got a chance to oh yeah oh yeah yourself oh yeah, another yeah, yeah. Army. and I had a good relationship I had a good relationship with my uh, counterpart and everything he, like I was with him for uh, 12 months, the whole year. So, uh, and the last time I saw him, I was, after North Vietnamese film, I was watching television, the news one night, and he was in a North Vietnamese re-education camp. I saw him in a picture. Through the telly. That's right. Through the eyes of Benjamin Abramowitz. That's right. That's right. 28 That's years. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Let me ask you one thing. If I record this, can I put it on anything? Yeah. How do I do that? You'll be able to email it to yourself? Or you'll record be able to... it? Yeah. Okay. You just send it to me. Okay. And you can put it on a... Uh, I can put it on a USB drive. Oh, a, a thumb drive, whatever, yeah. All right, we did it. Uh, listen, thank you so much for doing it. I was happy to do it.